Have you ever received a call or text from a number that you don't know saying that a package you ordered hasn't been delivered because they need just a little bit more information from you? You don't remember ordering a package and then start wondering how this scammer got your number. Well, anytime you go online and accept cookies or buy anything online, websites can keep your data and sell it to data brokers who create a digital ID of you. They can sell this digital ID to the highest bidder, and lo and behold, a bunch of scammers get a ton of information about you that you never agreed to give them. Well, with Ecogni, this is no longer an issue. All you need to do is sign up, and Ecogni will use the GDPR and CCPA and other privacy laws to get these companies to remove your data from their networks, protecting you and your data from scammers and anyone else who wants to use your data against you. Use the link in the description or episode notes and get Ecogni today for $6.49 a month on a one-year plan and protect your data and digital ID. Between the essential reads and the English essentials, I spend a lot of time writing scripts. Now, I could do this from home, but it's a lot nicer to get out of the house and work in a coffee shop or a cafe. I could use my phone data to check articles and research for my scripts, but that can get expensive fast. It's so much easier to use the Wi-Fi at my favourite coffee shops. Well, thanks to Surfshark VPN, I don't have to worry about public Wi-Fi networks stealing my data. I simply choose from one of their 3,200 plus servers in 100 countries and continue working without having to worry about anyone stealing my data. Use the link in the description or episode notes to get Surfshark VPN today for as little as $2.30 a month on a two-year plan and work worry-free wherever you please. Hello and welcome to The Essential Reads. We're continuing with One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest by Ken Kessie, and The Boys Are Out of the Asylum. It's uh, going to be a pretty interesting chapter, I reckon. Um, so let's dive in. If you wish to support the show, shop, links, description, do the stuff. Let's go. Trigger warning. This book was written in the 1950s and contains views and words that were used in that time period. I do not agree with these words and views and would never use them in my daily life. I shall be ducking the audio to bleep any offensive language so that this book can be uploaded to its appropriate platforms, but apart from that, the book will stay as it was intended to be read. If you find this sort of language disturbing or triggering, then please listen to another audiobook. Thank you for your understanding, Isaac. One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest by Ken Kessie Part 3 3 We crossed the bridge over the Suislaw. There was just enough mist in the air that I could lick out my tongue to the wind and taste the ocean before we could see it. Everyone knew we were getting close, and didn't speak all the way to the docks. The captain, who was supposed to take us out, had a bald, grey, metal head set in a black turtleneck, like a gun turret on a U-boat. The cold cigar sticking from his mouth swept over us. He stood beside McMurphy on the wooden pier and looked out to the sea as he talked. Behind him, and up a bunch of steps, six or eight men in windbreakers were sitting on the bench along in front of the bait shop. The captain talked loudly, half to the loafers on his one side and half to McMurphy on the other side, firing his copper jacket voice someplace in between. Don't care. Told you specifically in the letter. You didn't have a signed waiver clearing me with proper authorities. I don't go out. The round head swiveled in the turret of his sweater bearing down that cigar at the lot of us. Look there! Bunch like that at sea could go diving overboard like rats! Relatives could sue me for everything I own. Can't risk it. 
Mayor Murphy explained how the other girl was supposed to get the papers in Portland. One of the guys leaning against the bait shop called. What other girl? Couldn't Blondie there handle the lot of you? McMurphy didn't pay the guy any mind and went on arguing with the captain. But you could see how it bothered the girl. Those men against the shop kept leering at her and leaning close together and whispering things. All our crew, even the doctor, saw this and got to feeling ashamed that we didn't do something. We weren't the cocky bunch that was back at the service station. McMurphy stopped arguing when he saw I wasn't getting any place with the captain, and turned around a couple of times, running his hands through his hair. Which boat we got rented? That's it there, the lock. Not a man sets foot on her till I have a signed waiver clearing me. Not a man. I don't intend to rent a boat so we can sit all day and watch it bob up and down at the dock. Don't you have a phone up there in your bait shack? Let's go get this cleared up. They thumped up the steps onto the level with the bait shop and went inside, leaving us clustered up by ourselves with that bunch of loafers up there watching us and making comments and sniggering and goosing one another in the ribs. The wind was blowing the boats at their moorings, nuzzling them up against the wet rubber tires along the dock so they made a sound like they were laughing at us. The water was giggling under the boards and the sign hanging over the door to the bait shop that read Seaman Service, Cat and Block, Prop was squeaking and scratching as the wind rocked on its rusty hooks. The mussels that clung to the pilings, four feet out of the water, marking the tide lines, whistled and clicked in the sun. The wind had turned cold and mean, and Billy Bibbit took off his coat and gave it to the girl. She put it on over her thin little t-shirt. One of the loafers kept calling down, Hey you, Blondie! You like fruitcakes like that? The man's lips were kidney-colored and he was purple under his eyes where the wind had mashed the veins to the surface. Hey you, Blondie! He called out over and over in a high, tired voice. Hey you, Blondie! Hey you, Blondie! Hey you, Blondie! We bunched up closer together against the wind. Tell me, Blondie, what have they got you committed for? She ain't committed, Pierce. She's part of the cure. Is that right, Blondie? You hired as part of the cure? Hey, you, Blondie! She lifted her head and gave us a look that asked where was that hard-boiled bunch she'd seen, and why weren't they saying something to defend her? Nobody would answer the look. All our hard-boiled strength had just walked up those steps with his arm round the shoulders of the bald-headed captain. She pulled the collar of the jacket high around her neck and hugged her elbows, and strolled as far away from us down the dock as she could go. Nobody went after her. Billy Bibbit shivered in the cold and bit his lip. The guys at the bait shack whispered something else and whooped out laughing again. Ask her, Pierce. Go on. Hey, Blondie, did you get him to sign a waiver clearing you with the proper authorities? Well, it is could so, they tell me, if one of the boys fell in and drowned while he was on board. Do you ever think of that? Maybe you'd better stay here with us, Blondie. Yeah, Blondie. My relatives wouldn't sue. I promise. Stay here with us, fellows, Blondie. I imagined I could feel my feet getting wet as the dock sank with shame into the bay. We weren't fit to be out here with people. I wish McMurphy would come back out and cuss these guys good 
and then drive us back to where we belonged. The man with the kidney lips folded his knife and stood up and brushed the widow's shavings out of his lap. He started walking towards the steps. Come on now, blondie. What you want to mess with these bozos for? She turned and looked at him from the end of the dock, then back at us. And you could tell she was thinking his proposition over when the door of the bait shop opened and Murphy came, shoving out past the bunch of them down the steps. Pile in, crew. It's all set. Gassed and ready. There's bait and beer on board. He slapped Billy on the rear and did a little hornpipe and commenced slinging ropes from their snubs. All Captain Block's still on the phone, but we'll be pulling off as quick as he comes out. George, let's see if you can get that motor warmed up. Scanlon, you and Harden untie the rope there. Candy, what are you doing all the way down there? Let's get with it, honey. We're shoving off. We swarmed into the boat, glad for anything that would take us away from those guys standing in a row in the bait shop. Billy took the girl by the hand and helped her on board. George hummed over the dashboard on the bridge, pointing out buttons for McMurphy to twist or push. Yeah, these pookers, pook boats we call them, he said to McMurphy. They're just as easy, like driving an automobile. The doctor hesitated before climbing on board and looked towards the shop where the loafers stood, milling towards the steps. Don't you think, Randall, we'd better wait? Until the captain? McMurphy caught him by the lapels and lifted him clear off the dock into the boat like he was a small boy. <laughs> yeah, Doc, he said. Wait till the captain... <laughs> what? He commenced to laugh like he was drunk, talking in an excited, nervous way. Wait till the captain comes out and tell us that phone number I gave him is a flop house up in Portland? <laughs> you bet! Here, George. Damn your eyes, take hold of things and get us out of here. Seffel, get that rope loose and get on. George, come on. The motor chugged and died. Chugged again like it was clearing its throat, then roared full on. Hooey! There she goes. Pull the call to her, George. All hands stand by to repel borders. A white gorge of smoke and water roared from the back of the boat and the door of the bait shop crashed open, and the captain's head came booming out and down the steps, like it was not only dragging his body behind it, but the bodies of eight other guys as well. They came, thundering down the dock, and stopped right at the boil of foam, washing over their feet, as George swung the big boat out and away from the docks. And we had the sea to ourselves. A sudden turn of the boat had thrown Candy to her knees, and Billy was helping her up and trying to apologize for the way he acted on the dock at the same time. McMurphy came down from the bridge and asked if the two of them would like to be alone so they could talk over old times. And Candy looked at Billy, and all he could do was shake his head and stutter. McMurphy said in that case that he and Candy would better go below and check for leaks, and the rest of us could make do for a while. He stood at the door down to the cabin and saluted, winked, and appointed George Captain and Harding second in command, and said, Carry on, mates. And followed the girl, out of sight, into the cabin. The wind lay down, and the sun got higher, chrome-plating the east side of the deep green swells. George aimed the boat straight out to sea, full throttle, putting the dock and the bait shop farther and farther behind us. When we passed the point of the jetty and the last black rock, I could feel a great calmness creep over me a calmness that increased the further we left land behind us. The guys had talked excitedly for a few minutes about our piracy of the boat, but now they're quiet. 
The cabin door opened once, long enough for a hand to shove out a case of beers. And Billy opened us each one with an opener he found in the tackle box and passed them around. We drank and watched the land sinking in our wake. A mile or so out, George cut the speed to what he called a trolling idol and put four guys to the four poles in the back of the boat. And the rest of us sprawled in the sun on top of the cabin or up on the bow and took off our shirts and watched the guys trying to rig their poles. Harding said the rule was a guy got to hold to the pole till he got one strike, then had to change off with a man who hasn't had a chance. George stood at the wheel, squinting out over the salt cake windshield and hollering instructions about how to fix the reels and lines and how to tie a herring into the herring harness and how far back to fish and how deep. And take that number four pole and you put your 12 ounces on him on a rope with a breakaway rig. I'll show you how to in just a minute. And we'll go out to that big fella down to the bottom with that pole. By golly. Martini ran to the edge and leaned over the side and stared down into the water in the direction of his line. Oh, oh my God, he said. But whatever he saw was too deep down for the rest of us. There were other sports boats trolling up and down the coast. But George didn't make any attempt to join them. He kept pushing, steadily, straight on past them, toward the open sea. You bet, he said. We go out with the commercial boat, where the real fish is. The swells slid by, deep emerald on one side, chrome on the other. The only noise was the engine, sputtering and humming off and on, as the swells dipped the exhaust in and out of the water, and the funny, lost cry of the raggedy little birds, swimming around, asking one another directions. Everything else was quiet. Some of the guys slept, and the others watched the water. We'd been trolling close to an hour when the tip of Seffold's pole arched and dived into the water. George? Jesus, George, give us a hand! George wouldn't have a thing to do with the pole. He grinned and told Seffold to ease up on the star drag, keep the tip pointed up, up, and work the hell out of that fella. But what if I have a seizure? Seffold hollered. Why, we'll simply put hook and line on you and use you for a lure, Harding said. Now work that fella as the captain ordered, and quit your worrying about a seizure. Thirty yards back of the boat, the fish broke into the sun in a shower of silver scales. And Seffold's eyes popped, and he got so excited watching the fish, he let the end of his pole go down, and the line snapped into the boat like a rubber band. Up, I told you. You let him get a straight pull, don't you see? Keep that chip up. Up! You had one big silver there, my golly. Seffold's jaw was white and shaking when he finally gave up the pole to Fredrickson. Okay, but if you get a fish with a hook in its mouth, that's my god-blessed fish. I was as excited as the rest. I hadn't planned on fishing, but after seeing that steel power a salmon has at the end of the line, I got off the cabin top and put on my shirt to wait my turn at the pole. Scallon got a pool up for the biggest fish, another for the first fish landed, four bits from everybody that wanted in, and he'd no more than got his money in his pocket than Billy drug in some awful thing that looked like a ten-pound toad with spines on it like a porcupine. That's no fish, Scanlon said. You can't win on that. It isn't a bird. That there is a lingcod. George told us. He's one good eating fish if you get his watch off. See there? He is 
Two with fish. Pay up. Billy gave me his pole and took his money and went to sit close to the cabin where Murphy and the girl were, looking at the closed doors forlornly. I wish we had enough poles to go around, he said, leaning against the backside of the cabin. I sat down and held the pole, watched the line swoop out of the wake. I smelt the air and felt the four cans of beer I'd drunk shorting out dozens of control leads down inside me. All around, the chrome sides of the swells flickered and flashed in the sun. George sang out for us to look up ahead, that here come just what we've been looking for. I leaned around to look, but all I saw was a big drifting log and those black seagulls circling and diving around the log, like black leaves caught up in a dust devil. George speeded up some, heading into the place where the bird circled, and the speed of the boat dragged my line until I couldn't see how you'd be able to tell if you did get a bite. Those fellas, those cormorants, they go after a school of candlefish, George told us as he drove. Little white fishes, size your finger. You dry them up and burn just like a candle. They're food fish, chum fish. And you bet that when there's a big school of them candlefish, you'll find a silver salmon feeding. He drove into the birds, missing the floating log. And suddenly, all around me, the smooth slopes of chrome were shattered by diving birds and churning minnows and the sleek, silver-blue torpedo backs of salmon slicing through it. I saw one of the backs check his direction and turn and set course for a spot 30 yards behind the end of my pole, where my herring would be. I braced, my heart ringing, and then I felt a jolt up both my arms as if somebody'd hit the pole with a baseball bat. My line went burning off the reel from under my thumb, red as blood. Use the star drag, George yelled at me, but what I knew about star drags you could put into your eye. So I just mashed harder with my thumb until the line turned back to a yellow, then slowed and stopped. I looked round, and there were all three of the other poles whipping round just like mine and the rest of the guys scrambling down off the cabin at the excitement and doing everything in their power to get up underfoot. Up! Up! Keep the tip up! George was yelling. McMurphy, get out here! Look at this! God bless you, Fred! You got my blessed fish! McMurphy, we need some help! I heard McMurphy laughing and saw him out of the corner of my eye, just standing at the cabin door, not making a move to do anything and I was too busy cranking up my fish to ask him for help. Everyone was shouting at him to do something, but he wasn't moving. Even the doctor who had the deep pole was asking McMurphy for assistance. And McMurphy was just laughing. Harding finally saw McMurphy wasn't going to do anything, so he got the gaff and jerked my fish into the boat with a clean, graceful motion like he'd been boating all his life. He's as big as my leg, I thought. Big as a fence post. I thought he's bigger than any fish we ever got at the falls. He's springing all over the bottom of the boat, like a rainbow gone wild, smearing blood and scattering scales like silver dimes, and I'm scared he's going to flop overboard. McMurphy won't make a move to help. Scanlon grabs the fish and wrestles it down to keep it from flopping over the side. The girl comes running up from below, yelling it's her turn, dang it, and grabs my pole and jerks the hook into me three times while I'm trying to tie on a herring for her. Gee, I'll be damned if I ever saw anything so slow. Your thumb's bleeding. That monster bite you? Somebody fix the chief's thumb. Hurry! Here we go. Inch at him again, George yells, 
and I drop the line off the back of the boat and see the flash of herring vanish in the dark gray charge of a salmon, and the line go, sizzling down into the water. The girl wraps both her arms round the pole and grits her teeth. Oh no, you don't, dang you! Oh no! She's on her feet, got the butt of her pole scissored in her crotch, and both arms wrapped below the reel of that reel crank, knocking against her as the line spins out. Oh no, you don't! She's still got on Billy's green jacket, but that reel's whipped it open, and everybody on board sees the t-shirt she had on is gone. Everybody's gawking, trying to play his own fish, dodge mine slamming around the bottom of the boat with the crank of that reel, fluttering her breast at such a speed the nipple's just a red blur. Billy jumps to help. All he can think of to do is reach around from behind and help her, squeeze the pole tighter between her breasts until the reel's finally stopped by nothing more than the pressure of her flesh. By this time, she's flexed so taut and her breasts look so firm, I think she and Billy could both turn loose with them hands and arms and still keep hold of that pole. This scramble of action holds for a space, a second there on the sea, the men yammering and struggling, cussing and trying to tend to their poles while watching the girl, the bleeding, crashing battle between Scanlan and my fish at everybody's feet, the lines all tangled and shooting every which way, with the doctor's glasses on a string tangled and dangling from one line ten feet off the back of the boat, fish striking the flash of the lens, the girl cussing for all she's worth and looking now at her bare breasts, one white and the other smarting red. And George takes his eye off where he's going, and he runs the boat into that log and kills the engine, while McMurphy laughs, rocking further and further backwards against the cabin top, spreading his laugh out across the water, laughing at the girl, at the guys, at George, at me sucking my bleeding thumb, at the captain back at the pier, and the bicycle rider, and the service station guy, and the 5,000 houses, and the big nurse, and all of it because he knows you have to laugh at the things that hurt you, just to keep yourself in balance, just to keep the world from running you plumb crazy. He knows there's a painful side. He knows my thumb smarts, and his girlfriend has a bruised breast, and the doctor is losing his glasses. But he won't let the pain blot out the humor, no more than let the humor blot out the pain. I notice Harding's clasped beside McMurphy, and is laughing too and Scanlan from the bottom of the boat, at their own selves, as well as the rest of us, and the girl, with her eyes smarting as she looks from one white breast to a red one. She starts laughing, and Cephal, and the doctor, and all. It started slow, and pumped itself full, swelling the men bigger and bigger. I watched, part of them, laughing with them, and somehow not with them. I was off the boat, blown up off the water and skating the wind with those black birds high up above myself. I could look down and see myself and the rest of the guys, see the boat rocking there in the middle of those diving birds, see McMurphy surrounded by his dozen people and watch them, us, swinging a laughter that rang out on the water in ever-widening circles, farther and farther till it crashed up on the beaches all over the coast, on beaches all over the coasts, in wave after wave. The doctor had hooked something off the bottom on the deep hole, and everybody else on board, except George, had caught and landed a fish by the time he lifted it to where we could even see it. Just a whitish shape, appearing, then diving for the bottom in spite of everything the doctor tried to do to hold it. As soon as he'd get it near the top again, 
lifting and reeling it in the tight, stubborn little grunts and refusing any help the guys might offer. It would see the light, and down it would go. George didn't bother starting the boat again, but came down to show us how to clean the fish over the side and rip the gills out so the meat would stay sweeter. McMurphy tied a chunk of meat to the end of a four-foot string, tossed it in the air, and sent two squawking birds wheeling off, till death do him part. The whole back of the boat, and most of the people in it, were dappled with red and silver. Some of us took our shirts off and dipped them over the side and tried to clean them. We fiddled around this way, fishing a little, drinking another case of beer, and feeding the birds till afternoon, while the boat rolled lazily around the swells, and the doctor worked with his monster from the deep. A wind came up and broke the sea into green and silver chunks, like a field of grass and chrome, and the boat began to rock and pitch about more. George told the doctor he'd have to land his fish or cut it loose because there was a bad sky coming down on us. The doctor didn't answer. He just heaved harder on the pole, bent forward and reeled the slack, and heaved again. Billy and the girl had climbed round to the bow and were talking and looking down in the water. Billy hollered that he saw something, and we all rushed to that side. And a shape, broad and white, was becoming solid some ten or fifteen feet down. It was strange watching it rise. First, just a light coloring. Then a white form, like a fog under the water, becoming solid. Alive. Jesus Christ! Scanlon cried. That's the doc's fish? It was on the side opposite to the doctor. But we could see by the direction of his line that it led to the shape under the water. We'll never get that in the boat, Seffold said, and wind's getting stronger. He's a flounder, George said. Sometimes they weigh two, three hundred. You gotta lift him in with the winch. We'll have to cut him loose, Doc, Seffold said, and put his arm across the doctor's shoulder. The doctor didn't say anything. He had sweated clear through his suit and between his shoulders, and his eyes were bright and red from going so long without his glasses. He kept heaving till the fish appeared on his side of the boat. We watched it near the surface for a few minutes longer, then started getting the rope and gaff ready. Even with the gaff in it, it took another hour to drag the fish into the back of the boat. We had to hook him with all three poles, and Murphy leaned down and got his hand in the gills, and with a heave, slid it in, transparent white and flat, and flopped down on the bottom of the boat with the doctor. That was... something. The doctor panted from the floor, not enough strength left to push the fish off of him. That was... certainly something. The boat pitched and cracked all the way back to shore, with McMurphy telling grim tales about shipwrecks and sharks. The waves got bigger as we got closer to shore, and from the crests, clots of white foam blew, swirling up in the wind to join the gulls. The swells at the mouth of the jetty were combining higher than the boat, and George had us put on life jackets. I noticed all the other sport boats were in. We were three life jackets short, and there was a fuss as to who'd be the three that braved that bar without jackets. It finally turned out to be Billy Bibbit and Harding and George, who wouldn't wear one anyway on account of the dirt. Everybody was kind of surprised when Billy had volunteered. He took his life jacket off right away when we found out we were short and helped the girl into it. But everybody was even more surprised that McMurphy hadn't insisted on being one of the heroes. During all the fuss, he'd stood back against the cabin, bracing against the pitch of the boat, and watched the guys without saying a word, just grinning and watching.
we hit the bar and dropped into a canyon of water, the bow of the boat pointing up to the hissing crest of the wave going before us, and the rear down in the trough for the shadow of the wave looming behind us, and everybody in the back hanging on the rail and looking from the mountain that chased behind to the streaming black rocks of the jetty 40 feet to the left, to George at the wheel. He stood there like a mast. He kept turning his head from the front to the back, gunning the throttle, easing off, gunning again, holding us steady, riding the uphill slant of the wave in front. He told us before we started the run that if we went over the crest in front, we'd surfboard out of control as soon as the prop and rudder broke the water. And if we slowed down to where the wave behind caught up, it would break over the stern and dump ten tons of water onto the boat. Nobody joked or said anything funny about the way he kept turning his head back and forth like it was mounted up there on a swivel. Inside the mooring, the water calmed to a choppy surface again, and at our dock, by the bait shop, we could see the captain waiting with two cops at the water's edge. All the loafers were gathered behind them. George headed at them, full throttle, booming down on them till the captain went to waving and yelling, and the cops headed up the steps with the loafers. Just before the prow of the boat tore out the whole dock, George swung the wheel and threw the prop in reverse, and with a powerful roar, snuggled the boat in against the rubber tires like he was easing it into bed. We were already out tying up by the time our wake caught up. It pitched all the boats around and slopped over the dock and white-capped around the docks like we'd bought the sea home with us. The captain and the cops and the loafers came tromping back down the steps to us. The doctor carried the fight to them first, by telling the cops they didn't have jurisdiction over us as we were a legal government-sponsored expedition. And if there was anyone to take the matter up with, it would have to be a federal agency. Also, there might be some investigation into the number of life jackets that the boat held if the captain really planned to make trouble. Wasn't there supposed to be a life jacket for every man on board, according to the law? When the captain didn't say anything, the cops took some names and left, mumbling and confused. And as soon as they were off the pier... McMurphy and the captain went to arguing and shoving each other around. McMurphy was drunk enough he was still trying to rock with the roll of the boat, and he slipped on the wet wood and fell into the ocean twice before he got his footing sufficient to hit the captain one up alongside of his bald head and settle the fuss. Everybody felt better that that was out of the way, and the captain and McMurphy both went to the bait shop to get more beer while the rest of us worked at hauling our fish out of the hold. The loafers stood on that upper dock, watching and smoking pipes they'd carved themselves. We were waiting for them to say something about the girl again, hoping for it to tell the truth. But when one of them finally did say something, it wasn't about the girl, but about our fish being the biggest halibut he'd ever seen brought in on the Oregon coast. All the rest nodded that that was the sure truth. They came, edging down, to look it over. They asked George where he'd learned to dock a boat that way, and found out George not only run fishing boats, but he'd also been captain of a PT boat in the Pacific and got the Navy Cross. Should have gone into the public office, one of the loafers said. Too dirty, George told him. They could sense the change that most of us were only suspecting. These weren't the same bunch of weak knees from a nuthouse that they'd watched take their insults on the dock this morning. They didn't exactly apologize to the girl for the things they'd said, but when they asked to see the fish she'd caught, they were just as polite as pie. And when McMurphy and the captain come back out of the bait shop, we all shared a beer together before we drove away. It was late when we got back to the hospital. The girl was sleeping against Billy's chest, 
and when she raised up, his arm had gone dead, holding her all that way in such an awkward position, and she rubbed it for him. He told her that if he had any of his weekends free, he'd ask her for a date, and she said she would come to visit in two weeks if he'd tell her what time, and Billy looked at McMurphy for an answer. McMurphy put his arms around both their shoulders and said, Let's make it two o'clock on the nose. Saturday afternoon? She asked. He winked at Billy and squeezed the girl's head in the crook of his arm. No, two o'clock Saturday night. Slip up and knock on that same window you was at this morning. I'll talk the night aid into letting you in. She giggled and nodded. You damned McMurphy, she said. Some of the acutes on the ward were still up standing around the latrine to see if we'd been drowned or not. They watched us march into the hall, blood-speckled, sunburnt, stinking of beer and fish, toting our salmons like we were conquering heroes. The doctor asked if they'd like to come out and look at his halibut in the back of his car, and we all started back out, except McMurphy. He said he guessed he was pretty shot, and thought he'd hit the hay. When he was gone, one of the acutes who hadn't made the trip asked how come McMurphy looked so beat and worn out when the rest of us looked red-cheeked and still full of excitement. Harding passed it off as nothing more than the loss of his suntan. You'll recall McMurphy came in full steam from a rigorous life outdoors on a work farm, ruddy of face and abloom with physical health. We've simply been witness to the fading of his magnificent psychopathic suntan. That's all. Today he did spend some exhausting hours in the dimness of the boat cabin, incidentally, while we were out in the elements, soaking up the vitamin D, Of course, that may have exhausted him to some extent, those rigors down below, but think of it, friends. As for myself, I believe I could have done with a little less vitamin D and a little more of his kind of exhaustion. Especially with the little candy as a taskmaster. Am I wrong? I didn't say so, but I was wondering if maybe he wasn't wrong. I'd noticed McMurphy's exhaustion earlier, on the trip home, after he'd insisted on driving past the place where he lived once. We just shared the last beer and slung the empty can out of the window at the stop sign, and were just leaning back to get the feel of the day, swimming in that kind of tasty drowsiness that comes over you after a day of going hard at something you enjoy doing, half sunburned, half drunk, and keeping awake, only because you wanted to savor the taste as long as you could. I noticed vaguely that I was getting so as I could see some good in the life around me. McMurphy was teaching me, I was feeling better than I'd remembered feeling since I was a kid, when everything was good, and the land still singing kids' poetry to me. We drove back inland instead of the coast, to go through this town McMurphy'd lived in the most he'd ever lived in one place. Down the face of Cascade Hill, thinking we were lost, till we came to a town, covered a space about twice the size of the hospital ground. A gritty wind had blown out the sun on a street where he stopped. He parked in some reeds and pointed across the road. There. That's the one. Looks like it's propped up out of the weeds. My misspent youth's humble abode. Out along the dim six o'clock street, I saw leafless trees standing, striking the sidewalk there like wooden lightning, concrete split apart where they hit, all in a fenced-in ring. An iron line of pickets stuck out of the ground along the front of a tangleweed yard, and on the back was a big frame house with a porch, leaning a rickety shoulder hard into the wind so as not to be sent tumbling away a couple blocks like an empty cardboard grocery box. 
The wind was blowing a few drops of rain, and I saw the house had its eyes clenched shut and locks at the door banged on a chain. And on the porch, hanging, was one of those things jets make out of glass and hangs on strings, rings and clangs and the least little blow, with only four pieces of glass left to go. These four swung and whipped and wrung little chips off on the wooden porch. Mayor Murphy put the car back in gear. Once I've been here, since way the hell back in that year we were all getting home from that Korea mess, for a visit, my old man and my old lady were still alive. It was a good home. He let out the clutch and started to drive, then stopped instead. My God, he said. Look over there. See a dress? He pointed out back. In a branch of that tree, a ragged yellow and black. I was able to see a thing like a flag flapping high in the branches overhead. The first girl ever drug me into bed with that very same dress. I was about ten. She was probably less. And at the time, a lace seemed like such a big deal. I asked her if she didn't think, feel, we ought to announce it some way. Like, say to our folks, Mom, Judy and me got engaged today. And I meant what I said. I was that big a fool. I thought if you made it, man, you were legally wed. Right there on the spot, whether it was something you wanted or not. And that there wasn't any break in the rule. But this little whore, at most eight or nine, reached down and got her dress off of the floor, said it was mine. Said, you can hang this up someplace. I'll go home in my drawers and announce it that way. They'll get the idea. Jesus, nine years old, he said. Reached over and pinched Candy's nose. And knew a lot more than good many pros. She bit his hand, laughing. And he studied the mark. So, anyhow, after she went home in her pants, I waited till dark when I had the chance to throw that damn dress out in the night. But you feel that wind? Caught the dress like a kite and whipped it round the house and out of sight. And the next morning, by God, it was hung in that tree for the whole town. Was how I figured then to turn out and see. He sucked his hand, so woebegone that Candy laughed and gave it a kiss. So my colors were flown, and from that day to this, seems I might as well live up to my name. Dedicated Lover. And that is the God's truth. That little nine-year-old kid out of my youth's the one who's to blame. The house drifted past. He yawned and winked. Taught me to love. Bless her sweet ass. Then, as he was talking, a set of taillights going past lit up McMurphy's face, and the windshield reflected an expression that was allowed only because he figured it'd be too dark for anybody in the car to see. Dreadfully tired, and strained, and frantic. Like there wasn't enough time left for something he had to do. While his relaxed, good-natured voice doled out his life for us to live, a rollicking past full of kid fun, and drinking buddies, and loving women, and bathroom battles over meager honors, for all of us to dream ourselves into. Thank you so very much for listening. If you enjoyed, please like, comment, share, all that jazz, and if you really enjoyed, do subscribe, because there's more to come. And if you're listening on podcast, please leave a review. It, five stars preferred, but uh, you've got free will, do as you please. 
but it is the easiest way to get this in front of as many people as possible, which would be fantastic. I'd love to know what you thought of the chapter. Please let me know below. Things seem to be going well for them. Let's hope it continues that way. Once again, thank you for listening. And until next time, bye-bye.